Panzercrush.com Kaiju Kingdom Podcast. We are your hosts. Jessica! And I am Chris Eaton. And, oh, man, Jessica, what a great way to start off 2017. We have a very special episode for you guys. Uh, if you uh, listened to the last episode, or if you at least you've been on online at all, and if you're listening to the show, you definitely know this. There are a pair of Ultraman movies out in theaters right now. And yes. Yep. Came out out of like left field. Everyone was delightfully shocked. It was like an early holiday gift. Uh, it was announced <laughs> back at the beginning of December, and when uh, when the announcement was made, it was like, oh yeah, and <laughs> yeah, yeah. Th- these are going to be in like the first week of January too. So you're not going to have to wait no six months or anything like that. This wasn't a Shin Godzilla moment where everyone was waiting with bated breath of when will we get. It. It's like no, no. It's coming out. and It's coming out soon. So uh, we have. Uh, two very special uh, guests. These gentlemen are actually the men behind uh, putting out both uh, it's Ultraman uh, uh, Ginga S and Ultraman X the movie as a double feature for everybody across the country to see. Not only that, but they have dubbed the films. I believe this is the first dubbed Ultraman since the four kids attempt about some 15 years ago. So this is a monumental occasion. We actually get to kind of you know, go into the world of dubbing, which we rarely ever get to go into. So, uh, gentlemen, please introduce yourselves. Well, Brad, you want to introduce yourself? Sure, I'll go first. No problem. Hi, hi, everybody out there. Uh, my name is Brad Hill, and um, I worked on these films. I'm the guy who does all the technical side. I uh, am the ADR mixer and the re-recording mixer, the guy who runs the mic, uh, recorded everybody, and then blends it all in to make it sound like it was part of the original film. At least that's the goal. So that was what I did. And I'm William Winkler. I'm the writer, producer, director of the American English language versions of the new Ultraman films. And uh, I've I've had a long history in in anime. So this was uh, uh, really great when we began doing these. So. Well, let's start right there. Um, we'll start with with uh, with you, uh, William. Uh, your background. Uh, I'm looking at it here on uh, your IMDb. It says, it says you were uh, an actor originally. Were you not? Well, yeah, I, I studied acting and directing at UCLA with Don Richardson, who was the uh, Emmy. You know, he he taught acting and directing to people like Anne Bancroft and Grace Kelly, Zero Mostel, John Cassavetes, Elizabeth Montgomery, who. You know, uh, so many people, but I, I did a lot of stuff uh, in the 80s, and uh, but really my main goal was to be a, a writer, producer, director, and I was the youngest producer of an English-dubbed uh, anime show, or really syndicated television show, in the 19, around 1984, and eight, yeah, 84, uh, with Tekaman the Space Knight, which was Tatsunoko Productions' uh 
uh, science fiction superhero series. Tatsunoko is the company that did uh, Speed Racer and Gatchaman, Battle of the Planets, Robotech. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, 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 I work professionally as a writer, producer, director, but I've, I'm also a professional actor. And I've done a lot of work uh, on and off. In the in the shows that we do, if there's a part that fits my range or I sound similar to the Japanese performer, I'll do it. Um, but, uh, you know, and, and Bradford's also, uh, he has a background in acting as well in addition to the technical aspect. So, uh but so that, that's, that's, yeah. Oh, I was just going to say, uh, ironically, I studied at the rival school to Bill over there. He went to UCLA. I went to USC. So, <laughs> blood in the water, blood in the water, right there. Well, I just don't really. It doesn't matter to me. I mean, the main oh, thing. No. Is I, I, Don Richardson was was a genius, and 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 I use all of his principles when I direct, and and uh, uh, he, he he directed over eight hundred primetime TV shows and such and was just a, a, a really fantastic uh, guy. I come from a show business background. You know, my, my father had been a famous child actor and star in the 30s and 40s in Hollywood during the golden age of Hollywood. My dad worked in over 80 films and 200 radio shows with all the stars of the golden age of Hollywood and he did a tremendous amount of western movies. And So my history and my Hollywood history and my show business history goes back to around 1935 with my my dad was working in 35 Charlie Chaplin's wife got my dad into show business you know, that that's almost a whole show in its own right there <laughs> wow that's so amazing and then it was and it was generational because it went through World War II and through different wars like there's so many stories that could be told you know the entertainment industry is always i find imperative in certain times of american culture because it provides entertainment and relief and you know education and everything for people right right if i might step in real quick i'm looking at your imdb uh uh, william i'm just gonna list (laughs) off uh a few of the things a few of your credits real quick for the for the listeners uh, so after uh, it says here on uh, you did Techman Space Night, uh, you Techman, uh, thank you. I, I I know it as Techno Man. That was the 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 sequel series. I grew up as a kid. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> so I I I get those little. It's a little uh, pav, you know uh, you know a little kind of slip of the tongue on that one. But uh, yeah. real quick, they're very were... different. By the way, the oh. the original series was totally different than the sequel. Oh, very much. Believe me, I've had many yeah. argument over which one was the superior show with a lot of <laughs> with a lot of friends. So, um, real quick, you were you were in Remington Steel. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I I played a car thief in that, <laughs> and I was a teen. Uh, on the day of that shoot. Do you want to you want to really talk about that stuff? On the day of the shoot, I was there with Pierce Brosnan and Doris Roberts. Do you know who Doris Roberts yes, was? Yes, I know who Doris Roberts is. Yes, she was. She was on that sitcom with uh, Ray. Everybody loves Raymond. Everybody yeah, loves that's Raymond. That's right. So anyway, before she did that, she did Remington Steel. So anyway, she did. Yeah. A, she did. A, she had a scene where she was. I auditioned for this part, and I got this part. It was a like two day thing, and I was in. I remember being down in 
near Hollywood someplace on a residential street. And she had to investigate a criminal criminal's hideout and like the seventh story of this apartment building. And while she was up there in their apartment, they came in. And so she ran outside of the she she crawled outside of the window and was, you know, hanging on to the outside of the building. <laughs> and so while she was doing that. I stole her big, beautiful convertible car that was like this 1940s car. I forget the name of the vehicle, but anyway, and she was like screaming at me and I was waving at her and talking back and then I drove off. Pierce Brosnan was there at the time too. And uh, it was just the three of us uh, that day. It was kind of a fun thing. Um, It kind of went against type. I didn't really look like a car thief, but... Mm. You, you weren't there exactly you go. I'm, I, I made some nice money on that one. but You, you, you weren't exactly the 80s punk kid uh, type that would steal a car. No, but, you know, I played a punk rocker in a, a sitcom episode with Jason Bateman called It's Your Move. Looking at that right here. When I was going to college, mm-hmm. I was doing a lot of these, like, day player parts. My agent would call me and I'd do these things. And they were like five and under things, you know. Um, but you'd have to audition for them, and they were, you know, sad gigs and everything. But um, I was Jason Bateman's stand-in on that sitcom called It's Your Move back in... That was like 1984, wasn't it? Or 85, 85 or something? It says right here. And anyway, I can't remember what year it was. But anyways, early 80s or mid-80s or something. And so I would play his part. And I would rehearse with the actors and David Garrison and... Um, all the adults Monday through Friday and actually play his part with Garrett Morris and all that. And, uh, and then on front, cause he'd be in school. He was younger than me. And then he would f- follow what I did. He'd watch what I do. And then he'd do it on Friday, on Thursday and Friday. I do it. And I would do his part in front of the NBC executives when they come and watch the, uh, rehearsals. And, uh, and then we did that, but it's kind of amazing. He, he became like a, a star, movie star. Oh, I mean, it, yeah. it was really kind of uh, interesting how life works. <laughs> I, I got to be Ultraman, and yeah. he got to do his thing, you know. But uh, um, one time, Garrett Morris, who was uh, on Saturday Night Live, said to me, God, Billy, you know, you're a much better actor than Jason. You should be playing this part, not him and stuff. And I was like, shut up, shut up. I, I don't want to get fired from this job. Oh, my God. You know, I died when he said that. But anyway, it was really kind of a – the guys who made that show, they went on to boot, to uh, produce Married with Children. Oh, really? Yes. Yeah. And then, and then, and then the guy who, who I always acted with, uh, David Garrison – played the next-door neighbor to Al Bundy in Married with Children. Remember the oh, dark-haired yes. guy who uh, was married Steve. to the... Steve, yes, Steve. Oh, yeah, remember him? Guy. So he was a very nice <laughs> very, <I remember. laughs> very much so. That show was... Uh... One, time, one time during a rehearsal of It's Your Move, I had to kick him. And I, <laughs> I tried to pull the kick, you know, but I accidentally kicked him. But ah, I said, oh, God, I'm so sorry, David. I didn't mean to kick you for real. But I really, I guess, I don't know, I didn't pull it fast enough i guess i don't know well i don't i don't mean to derail for the people at home but i do love when i do love talking to to people especially who've who've kind of they're they do this journeyman kind of thing i mean if you listen to our uh 
our episode with uh, Ricardo Delgado. <laughs> it was like well over an hour before we were even did anything Godzilla related with him. Uh, real quick, I just want to give people a few more things because you've been in a ton of stuff, and all this is my childhood. You know what? So little... Can I say? Let me just say one thing real quick. Yeah. One thing that's one thing that's not on IMDb, mm-hmm. and it's kind of interesting. I had a little kind of silent bit thing in the original Back to the Future. Which part? And I, the first Back to the Future show, mm-hmm. I was one of the 1950s kids in the diner with Biff having the confrontation with uh, McFly. And I remember I was dating a, a girl at the time, and she got, we were both going to do these little bits, and she got to do her bit with the girl who played the mother, remember? Leah, Leah Thompson. Yeah. yeah. So, but my part, you know, mm-hmm. got cut and that was the end of it. But I remember being on that set and and the guy who played the uh the guy who played the the uh, the diner uh cook or mm-hmm. the guy who owned it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the actor, he did the voice of Aquaman in the Super Friends. I was more interested in that aspect of it, you know, because I was talking to him about every time he would talk, I kept hearing Aquaman's voice, you know. But that movie, Back to the Future, when I was on that that Courthouse Square set, was just absolutely phenomenal because down to every little detail, it was really like the 1950s. It was, the, and my dress, the way I looked with the grease back hair and the clothes and stuff, I mean, I looked like I was a kid in like uh like a high schooler I always looked younger than my age you see so I, I when I was like in my 20s I'd be playing 16 so uh, it, it it got a little ridiculous when I was like 27 playing a 17 year old you know but anyway the thing is that uh uh that set was so fantastic and I remember going into hair and makeup and then coming out and here comes this big universal studios tour bus and it stops, and the announce the the tour tram guide says, "And there's one of our stars of Back to the Future, our new movie with Michael J. Fox." And there were a whole bunch of Japanese tourists, and they all started taking pictures of me. And I think, boy, I wish I could get one of those pictures because I did. I never got a picture on the set of that, but it was. Uh, and I remember the guy who played McFly's McFly. Uh, what was his name again? The actor who played it. Oh, Chris uh, Glover. Yes. yes, he would. He was running around the, the whole lot the whole time, and, he, and and I said, "Why are you doing that? What are you?" Doing? He says, "I gotta get all hyped up for this character." And blah, blah, blah. so he was like a method actor, and he was running around like jogging mm. around the whole thing, so he could be kind of like, "Oh well, I'm I'm so sorry, Biff. I I didn't mean to do what I'm doing. I'm, I'm you know I bet you know he was all like nervous as hell and whatever, and he was jogging to do all that. It was kind of a kind of an amazing thing." You know, oh, I can, but that oh. was a. I everybody knew that movie was going to be fantastic. I mean, even when I was there, I told my agent, I said, "Boy, this is a really interesting thing." You know, I mean, I wish I had a bigger role other than just a little, you know, nothing. I, I, yeah, I, I've always, I've always, uh, I, like, I've again, not to get too far off, but whenever Bob Gale talks, about it, it's like, yeah, we didn't know this was, you know, going to be anything like that. Like, we didn't have a sequel in mind. I was like, you were, you were a liar. You knew what you had at the time. <laughs> you know, Chris. <laughs> So uh, I was also I was supposed to be in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, but I was working on something else at the time. I think it was the Jason Bateman thing. What? But I was supposed to be right. Remember when the teacher was saying Bueller? Yeah, Bueller. He was going to. I auditioned to be one of the guys. It was. It would have been like you know Johnson here, 
That was my one line. Uh, Here. Well, I mean, you... It, Just two names before Bueller. Well, it did I believe you, you were also a Knight Rider, if I'm Oh, I'm yeah. That was, yes. that, was, that was a... I can't... That was a... I was like, it was a Halloween show or something, right? Yes, it's called Trick or Treat on, on here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah <laughs> it was me and him. You know, he always, Hasselhoff always seemed kind of like a, uh, <laughs> kind of like a, he was like trying to do a John Wayne impression. You know, that's what I always thought at the time. It sounded like, God, he's doing kind of like this half ass John Wayne thing. You know? And you're talking and, Hasselhoff in his prime, too. But. But it was, um, I, I remember I got the part, but then the agent told me, well, you got to wear a Halloween mask. And I said, oh, damn. You know, because my, my face wasn't seen. I, we were trick-or-treaters, and I had to wear like a Halloween. I took the mask off at one point, but I basically I had this scene. It was a scene mm-hmm. uh, with Michael Knight in the car. The car was yeah. I can't remember too much more about it. I think we shot that like in Northridge or something. They would shoot that on real locations like the Remington Steel thing. Well, real quick. I did did a whole bunch of those five and under type things. Well, let me look. Can I rattle off a couple more of them real quick? And then I'm looking because it's, it's, again, it's fascinating as hell. So you were on Silver Spoons. Yes. You were on Who's the Boss, which is a staple of my childhood. Yeah, huh? Uh, which we all agree the boss was really Mona. Um, you were on Amazing Stories. This, this uh, that, I, that was what I, do. I, love I think that was stories. the that was that the show where the guy was um, looking for the Alamo or something. Uh, no, I was that the I did two of them. Well, the one I did one where there was a guy there was a guy looking for the Alamo. Mm-hmm. He was a, he was misplaced in time or something. He was. Now, this one says you. Do you ever a, see that one? It that was shot I, at them all, and then there was another one I did where it was like a, was it a Christmas thing or something? Yeah, it was. A, this one says Santa eighty five. That's the one that that's listed on here. Yeah, I don't, I don't yeah. remember much about it. You were in. Pretty, I was a caroler or something. Yes, Christmas caroler. Yeah, it all comes back like an. <laughs> you know that wasn't real snow. It was yeah. all soap. Yes, it was all. And they do soap it, shavings for that, right? And it stunk. <laughs> and I hated that. Well, you didn't get in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, but you got into that Pretty in night. Pink. Well, I'm sorry. You got oh, in... yeah, Pretty in Pink, I was a drunk in that one. Mm, exactly, that's what I it says. I remember Molly Ringwald, I, you know, I always thought of her as like a teenage Pippi Longstocking, you know? It was kind of funny. She was she was really very um, popular at the time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it, again, it was just, I had to audition for this part mm-hmm. where I'd be like a drunk at this party and the guy had his arm on me saying, hey, look, I think they call, they referred to my name, Billy, in the movie or something. But what was his name? Andrew, Andrew, oh, uh, um, Carthy's, Andrew McCarthy. Was that his name? Uh, blanking on his name right now. I, you need a second look at Anyway, up. whatever. So, yeah, that was a day thing. That was at a, at a big, that was in a mansion that was down by, oh, it was where all those, it was in a, it, you know when you go past Hollywood mm-hmm. and before Koreatown there's all these big white elephant mansions and it was one of those mansions I remember we shot that that was a real that was a real that wasn't a set that was a real thing as I recall I think mm-hmm. and then you know, last one I want to bring up you were on mm-hmm. Mr. Belvedere sir 
What was it like to be in the in the grace of awesome, Mr. Belvedere? <laughs> that is so so much of my childhood. Mm. So much. Yeah, of it. I I I was. <sighs> I was in a Catholic school or something in that one. That was another one where I was in a church or something. I think you got credited. The guy, on it. the guy who, uh, the guy who played Belvedere was, uh, he's he passed away, didn't he? Yes, about f- almost twenty years ago now. Yeah, he you twenty years ago. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, there's a guy who was on that show called uh, Bill Kirkenbauer, and he was later like, I, I met him, he's a friend friend of mine, but he was like a guest star, he was like the coach. There were girl, teenage girls who went to a Catholic school or something in this, in this show, mm-hmm. and I remember it was another five and under thing where I had to be in a Catholic school with the, again, I'd be like 25 and, and I'd be playing like I'm 17 or something. And But I remember Belvedere kind of, uh, kind of irritated. He was sort of irritated all the time. I mean, off camera. They, they, you know, they'd shoot those things in front of a live audience, and there'd be two shows, one at like 5 o'clock to 6, and then they'd serve us dinner, and then we would repeat it again afterwards. So there'd be two shows a night. Then they would cut whatever the best scenes were together from the two tapings. Mm-hmm. And... There'd be a guy in the audience to get everybody all happy and excited and laugh at jokes. And I don't know. You know, when you mentioned Silver Spoons and all those things, some of those sitcoms, I felt, weren't so funny. I mean, I remember being on the shows. I mean, like when I did when I did Night Rider, when I did Night Rider, that was a great show and I loved mm. the car and everything. You know, there were a whole bunch of cars. I mean, that same day that I did Night Rider, there were multiple scenes where cars were getting wrecked. The kit car used to drive into a semi truck, mm-hmm. and the, it was a base. The semi truck had a base in it that the you know they would like talk to Kit, and they he would power up or something, and Michael Knight would talk to to Devin and get his instructions, and then he would roll out of that semi truck. And every time they shot those scenes, you know they they it was almost impossible to drive the Trans Am a moving Trans Am <laughs> into a moving truck that had like a ramp. So they would, they'd have like seven or eight stunt cars on ready to be wrecked mm-hmm. because it would, <laughs> it would like take the whole side as they, you know, it was almost impossible to get it perfectly in in into the semi without wrecking or scraping the side of the car. I remember that. Smoking the bandit kind of lied to a lot of people. Well, I could go all day about this because there's a lot of other stuff, but let's jump over to Bradford real quick. I want your, I want your origin story, sir. Okay, uh, where I guess should I start then from the top top? Start go, go, just where where you, wherever you think that uh, that you, that you feel that the people should know. Hmm. Well, uh, I'll just run it down then. I guess pretty quick from the start. So I got into uh, filmmaking and stuff quite early. Like Bill, I have a, a background in performance first and foremost. Um, I started. I'm actually not from Los Angeles originally. I come from little place people might have heard of Idaho. (laughs) I grew up on a farm, believe it or not. So I kind of made a a drastic 180 when I moved to the middle of, you know, the biggest city or second biggest city in in the the country where I come from a town of less than 500 people with one stoplight. So it was quite a change. 
But uh, even there, I uh, you know started with theater and all that. And I worked at a place called Trifusion, and that's where I first started doing a lot of the technical stuff as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, where I started picking up uh, what I do a lot of with these, obviously the sound work, uh, sound design, sound recording. And um, then I went to USC, and I uh, majored in both actually. So I've always kind of been very down the center of both. Mm-hmm. Um, I, stu- I majored in theater. I also uh, studied cinema, so I graduated with a degree in both mm-hmm. in the uh, back of the stage. And then uh, after that, uh, hit the you know hit the ground running on stuff. Ironically, um, it's not on my list there, so you probably don't see a lot of them. But it's kind of funny that uh, Bill worked on the old Knight Rider. I worked on the new Knight Rider. Oh. <laughs> I was a, a bouncer in one of the episodes. <laughs> um, <laughs> Where so I got to be next to the new the, the new car and everything, which is really cool. I'm a fan of Mustangs. So it's <laughs> interesting. Um, I didn't know but, you did that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can look it up. You see me. I, like that's funny. Uh, I had some screen time, but um, you know, just uh, one of the bouncer guys they have to walk by. But uh, yeah, it's kind of kind of uh, ironic. I didn't know you had done the first Night Rider, so it was kind of like, oh, I didn't know that. But um, yeah, um, worked on that, and I also uh, ended up spending some time at Disney for a while. And uh, while I was there, uh, I was working where, with uh, the guys at Disney Character Voices. That's who I kind of shadowed under was those guys over there. Learned a ton from them about voice recording and all of this kind of stuff and got to watch some of the greats. I met, like, uh, the voice of Mickey and Minnie and uh, all those guys and Donald and Goofy and the Chipmunks and, and uh, everybody, uh, all the main cast there, kind of went through all that. And then after, that's where I was when Bill found me. And I ended up uh, not staying on there, and so I moved over, and that's when I started working with Bill. So, um, yeah, I guess that's kind of my origin story. I've been, ever since college, just kind of doing a little bit of uh, both the acting. I keep working professionally acting, just finished a web series that I did stuff on. Uh, I mean, I was a large roll-in. It's there on my IMDb Z Fever. And uh, did some other acting, and did voices, obviously, in these, and then continued to do... Uh, a lot of sound work and uh, mixing and editing and uh, keeping up with that. So now we're at the point where you two are are working together. So tell us exactly what it is you uh, you gentlemen do. Well, well uh, do you want to go first, Bill? Yeah. Uh, okay. So if it's I, – I basically, like I said, I, I stole him from Disney. <laughs> <laughs> And I, I uh, the process is basically if we get an anime show or a feature film, live action, uh, I'll get all the master materials and I will get the Japanese language script in Japanese. Now, I have a wonderful lady named Emily Midori Nelson. And Emily translates all of my material. So she's been doing this for years. She has a resume. that I mean, she worked for all the companies and Bandai, Namco, and video games, and uh, tons of companies. And anyway, she lived in Japan, and she's also lived here. She's an American citizen. She married an American guy. and But her English is fantastic and her Japanese is fantastic. So her translations are really super great. And so she will translate the scripts. Now, if we're producing an English subtitled version, sometimes we do both. On the Ultraman shows, we've done both. 
-hmm. It's her script that is then used to make the subtitled version. Okay? It's Mm -hmm. not mine. So now her script, that will go to Brad, and then Brad will begin to produce the different subtitled versions using the masters we have. And the masters will be the original Japanese movie, uh, since that's for the English subbed version. Mm-hmm. Uh, Emily's script will then be used by me as the uh, the basis of what I'm going to do for the dubbing script. And once that's done, then it goes to Bradford for the queuing up of the lines. And then we will, I cast the actors and we will record the actors uh, one at a time, get all the lines in in a day or two. And then uh, it's the post-production phase where we'll, you know, Bradford does his bit. But, I mean, in a nutshell, that's how it works. Um, Brad, you want to add anything to that? I mean, uh, Yeah, I mean, basically, so when Bill gets done with his stuff, he hands it over to me. And like you said, I get ready for the recording sessions. And then I prep all the stuff to, in order to run that, queue up the, the video so it runs while the, the actors are talking. I get all that set up. Um, then I record them, pick the mics, do all the recording, make sure everything's good. And then, uh, like you said, when post-production starts, when I kind of take over. So I'm the guy who then has to take all the best takes and everything, put it in, sync it up, and then uh, go through and make it sound like it didn't get recorded in a little recording booth. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, so, so you're, in, in, many, um, in layman's terms, uh, and I don't mean this in, in – please take this in the spirit of what's in the tent. You're kind of Frankensteining it together, if you, if you will. Well, kind of. I guess you could say that. Um, yeah, it, it's well. <laughs> Frankenstein makes it sound like it's not finesse. I know, I know. I, that's why I, I couldn't. I couldn't come up with a little more finessed word. So that's why. I said, so please take it in the spirit in which it's intended. Well, what we do is yeah. poetry. What we do is poetry in motion. I'll tell you. Thank yeah. you. See, you, so much better. So much better. Um, the, yeah, I'll tell you the ahead. secret. Really, it, mm-hmm. it it it's. I've been doing this for thirty something years, and. It's all in the script writing. There's a special way that I write my English dubbing scripts. The whole goal that I have is to create an English dubbed film, either anime or live action, especially with live action, like with Ultraman. Mm -hmm. I want the audience to fall under a spell. I want them to think that these are Asian-American actors living and working in Hollywood, speaking their Native American tongue of American English, and I don't want the audience thinking that the shows are dubbed. That's the goal. And I have ways in which to uh, form the sentences. I have a musical background. This has a lot in common with music composition. And so I have a way to get the patterns and the syllables and the consonants and the vowels and the pauses. And when the sentences speed up and slow down and every little damn thing that comes out of those actors' mouths, I record in my scripts. If it's a cough, if it's a laugh, if it's a, if it's a pant, if somebody's running, how many times did they pant? <laughs> you know, it was like five or six. You know, you got to count every pant. The actor in the studio has to replicate Every single sound, dialogue, coughing, laughing, everything, they've got to think the thoughts of those Japanese actors, and they've got to feel the emotions of those Japanese actors. And when you do that, and then you use Brad's little trickery that he uses to get the echoes and the sweetening and the effects, 
what we wind up with is something that it looks like they're really talking and speaking and feeling the emotions. That's the illusion we're creating. There's nothing better than a fantastic dub, and there's nothing worse than a horrible dub. Oh, but, oh, you know, oh yes. <laughs> oh, yes. I mean, and that's, that's essentially, the script is really the foundation upon which everything is based. If the script is off, if my script were total cockeyed, it, it, you, you just, there's no, the, the dubbing sessions would be a nightmare, mm -hmm. and the editing post would be almost impossible. It, it, the script is the key to the whole thing. That's what makes it work. And it just, I've been doing it for 30 years, and I, I, and I know the Japanese language. That's why the feedback we're getting already from the Ultraman films, and what I've had in the past with some anime, but especially these Ultraman movies, is that, wow, you know, most of the audiences are, are, are thrilled. And kids, remember, a big part of our demographic, it's basically kids and families. The kids, especially little boys, they, they're in love with what's, what they see. Well, and, that, and that's a big, a big part of, like, especially when uh, you guys put out that press release that you guys were dubbing it. Because, I mean, here's the thing. Um, Ultraman has a, a, ha, does have a, a nice storied uh, history in the United States. There have been many, you know, versions out there. But the problem is, is that in the last decade or so, it's been kind of, uh, well, let's, let's just say there's been a drought of it, at least in, in an official terms out here. Um, it, only in the past, I would say maybe a year and a half, has a streaming service like Crunchyroll came in, picked up the ball, and really ran with it. And like in getting, you know, these shows because the beauty about Ultraman, there's a lot. It's like it's there. You have a buffet to choose from. The downfall to it is, is because here's the thing: it's it is a kid show. It. I mean, there are a lot of adults who grew up with it who have a fondness for it. But the problem is, is that a lot of them don't. They'll they'll give these newer ones a try, but the thing is, again, it is a kid show, so there's some there's goofiness to it. But and uh, coming to roundabout of that is that even though it's on Crunchyroll, you're aiming to like a, a very hardcore audience. They're still subbed, and if you're showing this to like a six year old, a seven year old, they're not going to be they're, uh, reading comprehension unless your parents are like one of those helicopter parents that are making sure you're reading at like four. They're not keeping up with this stuff. And, you know, the, the pretty pictures are going to kind of, you know, you know, kind of pull them in. But in the end, they're not going to get the whole thing. Dubbing brings them in. You're, you're talking to them. They could follow the story. They know what's going on. They're getting into the character. They're getting into the, they're, they're learning everything that's going on, what the story is, and why, you know, especially when Ultraman shows up and he's fighting, you know, you know a monster, what's going on and why it means so much that Ultraman beats this, you know, this horrible abomination in front of him. And uh, that, that, I applaud that. Thank you. Because now you're, you're helping introduce a whole new generation <coughs> to Ultraman. Which, you know, Godzilla's out there. Ultraman is still something that there's a wealth of possibility in it, but it's just nobody ever really picked up the ball. And you guys have picked up the ball and you are running with it. Yes. I actually well, wanted to know... Oh, Oh, I'm sorry. I actually want to know, is there anything about a misconception of dubbed anime that you guys wanted to clear up for people out there? Because one of the big things I have with my friends is much like who likes Marvel and DC. I have friends who are like, no, I don't I don't do dub only subtitles. And I have friends who only do dubbing and then they don't do subtitles. So it really I have friends who will stop watching a series until the dubbing has started. 
until the new dubbed episodes have been uploaded onto whatever streaming service. Or I have ones who don't even do, they're like, no, all dubbing is bad. I don't like it. And I'm like, no, there are really great ones. Is there any like misconceptions or things that you guys kind of want to let those who, I guess, don't think right about dubbing that you guys kind of well, want to clear up? I, I think the bad, uh, let me just say this. I think the bad dubbing is, is what turns people off. But, but what we're doing right now is we're creating beautiful, authentic, uh, faithful English subs of these Ultraman movies. So those audiences or purists or certain uh, demographics who just want to watch it subbed, they can, they will be able to see these films all subbed. So there's no problem. They're satisfied we have them taken care of. But for the other 330 million Americans <laughs> and every single kid, every boy, right. six, seven, right. eight, nine years old, they're going to be watching the dubbed versions, and these dubbed versions are authentic. They're Hollywood actors that match the basic tone, tonality, and sound, and tenors, and whatnot of the voice act of the Japanese voice actors. When we cast, we don't just randomly cast. I mean, it's like putting a key in a lock. Every voice has to believably match the Japanese voice actor. So we've got wonderful Hollywood actors and Brad being the you know ex Disney editor and myself with my history right. we right. we come up with we we're able to do something great i'll tell you in 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 the country of you know in the USA there's two places that all the actors go to have careers they go to hollywood to be in film and tv or they go to new york to be in broadway or off broadway yeah. okay so i have access to the greatest actors in the world and, you know, Bradford and I have done anime where we've had to dub, uh, you know, French and Italian, you know, different languages uh, for certain projects. We did a Bandai Namco game, Great Animal Kaiser. We did an Indonesian voiceover for that. We can get the greatest talent here in Hollywood. And so uh, it makes all the difference in the world. I think. I, I think the other thing, too, that I'll say, and then Brad can maybe make some comments, but yeah. – uh, when you look at how they shoot the Ultraman movies, or any movie for that matter, the director of photography is working with the director to set up a beautiful shot, and they're taking it, you know, they're tinkering with the lights, they're trying to get the most gorgeous shot they can, they may have a fantastic set or a great background, the hair and makeup people are working on the actors to make them look just their best. The special effects guys are trying to spending hours trying to set up a fantastic shot. You've got dolly tracks in this moving camera and the, the the most gorgeous cinema experience that they can create for these movies. And on the silver screen, you see this gorgeous shot. And if you're looking at the bottom half of the screen reading it, you're 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 missing half the half the picture. Your brain cannot do two things at once. I think you're missing out. You don't know what you're missing because right. Right. you're not you're not sitting back. Why do they call it cinema? It is a visual cinematic experience. And if you if you're only looking at you know subtitled stuff, you're basically missing out on everything that the DP did, everything that the the director tried to set up. All that hard work that the Japanese crew did to try and the actors did to try to create gorgeous shots you're missing so 
when you have a William Winkler Productions dub, it's going to be a very high quality uh, Hollywood English dub with perfect lip sync, with great talent, with great editing. It's it's essentially like you know I said Brad came from Disney. I have this long track record. We've got great talent. So uh, the feedback we're getting is just phenomenal for these. There, people are really surprised. That's the thing. A lot of some of the people who just want subs, they wa they watch it. They're surprised at the quality of what we've done. So if it's done like that, it, by the way, it's an incredibly difficult thing to do. I don't think people understand if you if you know anything about film production, dubbing is the most difficult thing in the world to do. It's a dying art. There's not a lot of companies that really do it. People say they can, but they can't. Yeah. And uh, you know. You know, I started in 1984, so I mean, it's it's uh, it's something that uh, you know, it, it's something that is is if it's the right team, it works, and and that's why I'll tell you, we we started off with one, and we did three Ultraman films, and we've got more projects coming, and you know, Brad and I are very busy, so. You know, he's my main recording engineer, editor, sound designer, et cetera. So, but I don't know, Brad, you want to add anything about recordings? Yeah, yeah. Um, you, I think you touched on uh, going back to the question about uh, kind of misconceptions. Uh, me personally, I'm, I'm kind of the same way. I, when I look at a movie that's subtitled, I can't feel the emotion as well as I do when I watch one that's dubbed because my brain can't concentrate on reading and also concentrate on the way they're saying words I can't understand. But, um, to kind of give it a little bit more, because Bill kind of handled the creative side, but on the more technical side, I guess one misconception I feel is that, um, I don't know if this is true, but I kind of get the impression a lot of times the people who really like the subs feel they're more authentic or more true, and uh, the ones that like the dubs right. are they're right. like changing stuff. And one, I know we try having... Being uh, the guy who literally, in a lot of cases for these, makes the subs and the dubs, I can tell you the differences because <laughs> I've seen both. Um, and I know that we try very hard. Bill tries very hard with his writing to stay faithful to the original, and it's really very few things. But um, the truth is, the kind of the misconception is there are restrictions and requirements to both subs and dubs. And so there is the only way to ever hear the Japanese the way it should be is to speak Japanese. It's just the only way. Because <laughs> even the dubs or the right. subs, you know, um, speaking, we were talking about them being more for kids. Well, the requirements for subtitles for kids is different than the requirements for subtitles for adults because adults read faster. And so when you do subtitles, then you have to change how many characters per second, which means you have to change. To get very technical, long story short, it, there's the requirements of how many words can you fit in two lines, and that two lines has to be on screen for a matter of seconds. Oh, right. And right. that can change your, like, you can take your perfect translation, which is what we start with. That's what I get. I get the exact translation from Emily, and that's what I go with. But then even I have to sometimes, like, change, like, or take away, like, a few characters or a word. It changes based on. You know, you've got to shoot for a much slower read time for a younger audience than you do for an older audience. And even the older audience, there's only so many words you can fit on screen in one one second or two seconds, which is the minimum requirement to be able to see it. <laughs> well, I mean, so, I mean, especially, I yeah. mean, did, did any of you catch the uh, the latest Godzilla movie that uh, Funimation released? 
I heard. I, I, I didn't. Yeah. I didn't see it, but I. I've. You know, I was working on Ultraman. Yeah. I did not see the picture, but I know people who went and saw the picture. Well, and well, I bring yeah. this. I bring this up because it, it's a great point that Bradford was making. Because the uh, Shin Godzilla, uh, when it was released over here, uh, Funimation subtitled it. They didn't. They didn't go with a dub. Um, the problem with that is, is that the way the film was shot, and especially cause since it's in Japanese, it was shot with such rapid fire dialogue that it is almost impossible to watch this film once and understand what's really going on, because the subtitle, the the, act, the the actors are talking so quick because there's, it's a very dialogue heavy movie, ironically for a Godzilla film, and no. it's the ever it's the uh, best way I could I could put it, it's the West Wing. With Godzilla, that's how everyone's talking in this. Just now, let me fun. tell you when you when you have to dub something like that, mm-hmm. people talking over each other, multiple mm-hmm. people in a scene, endless dialogue for twenty minutes. That is a monumental nightmare to dub. Mm-hmm. Uh, if honestly, if I were given that assignment, I, I'd really have to think twice before even wanting to do it because I think. I think I'd have a nervous breakdown oh. doing it. First of all, it would be like dubbing three movies instead mm-hmm. of one movie, okay? Sure. And it would take months to do. I think, Brad, from your angle, you want to talk about what that would entail? Oh, and well. It would yeah. be like... It it, it, it. it increases because you have to... It, it, I mean, it's definitely doable, but mm-hmm. you, you record each one separately, and then you have to try and mix them all together, and then they have to try and like act like they talk to each other. <laughs> so, you know, when I write a dub... It's totally yeah. doable. Yeah. When I write a when I write a dubbing script with I had this problem with there's a future film we're doing and there were multiple children talking at once with adults and I'll tell you it 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 to, because remember I'm a perfectionist it has to be absolutely perfect I had to loop the scene for every single one of those kids every little thing they did and the adults and it it just took so long and it was so tedious it was it was it was very difficult so it's uh i really you know if this Brad and I did an anime film <laughs> that we thought we th- we won't talk about the title of it but we thought that it was going to be 50% action 50% talk oh, it turned out to be a wall to wall talking i i said oh my god it's the movie that never ends you know it, it's a great it's a fun film for kids but i i it was such oh, it was 1500 lines show. wow how much what was it 1500 lines and you know average three oh, takes my gosh. like 5000 takes i mean it was ridiculous it was so much 5000 it was it was you know, so the that that maybe there's maybe that's why they subtitled that picture. My, my understanding <laughs> well, is that picture's real it's not really a kid's picture, is it? It's an adult movie. I mean not an adult movie. I mean, you know, it, it's a movie it, it's made aimed for, at an older audience. It, it, yeah, yeah, so you know what? You could live with a sub for it. I don't think well, that they need to dub it. Real quick, just just to give people time, what is the on a project like that, what's the crunch time where you guys gotta get it in and get it out? About six weeks. Wow. Wow, so from start oh, to finish in six weeks. We're like a well-oiled machine, you mm. see. We, uh, when I talk about poetry in motion, mm. I'm doing my thing. Emily does the script. Emily gets the subtitle. 
Brad mm-hmm. works on a subtitle. I'm doing the dubbing script. I got the cast ready to go. We set up the Brad cues up the lines for the, and then we go forward and we record. I mean, it, it's it's not that bad. I I meet up with Brad multiple times too in the post phase to kind of give him, you know, fair amount of that post phase too. Yeah, not, yeah, just see what's going on and. You know, one of the one of the more difficult things too is the ending title credits. I mean, we we pay attention to every little detail. I mean, we do an, animated titles for the opening titles of the films, uh, any subtitles for locations that appear in the movie. Uh, you know, in the ending title credits with that big crawl, we translate all the Japanese cast and crew, and then our credits go up. And you're looking at hundreds of technicians and crew. That we have to translate. That's a big job too, because you know we have to. The Japanese crew titles are sometimes not the same as Hollywood crew mm-hmm. titles. You know, they have they they kind of have their own specific job descriptions of what certain people do. It, it's kind of funny, but uh, that's another aspect of the production that that. Again, is something you'd think you wouldn't think anything of it, but it, you know, it takes time to get those, all those names, you know, and you got to spell. And some of these people really don't have uh, English spellings of their names, so we'd have to say, well, how? Okay, when you spell your name in English, you're gonna. Is this the spelling you'd like? <laughs> you know, that's what the studio had to do. So. If that makes sense. You understand what I'm saying? Oh, very, very, very much so. This is why I'm glad to have you guys on because, again, it's (laughs) much like uh, when when I've uh, interviewed uh, voice actors, professional voice actors, you know, for, like, cartoons and stuff in the past. You know, a lot of people seem to think that, you know, there's just, oh, it's the easiest job in the world. You go in, you sit down, you say a few lines, you're out, and, you know, you're just slapping something over something that has already been, and it's already done. You're just, you know, you're adding, like, you know, a, a, a topping to a cake that's already been baked. And I, I always tell people, it's like, no, it's far more nuanced than that, and there's a lot of work that goes into these. And if you I, know, it, let me just say this real mm-hmm. quick. If Well, I have it in my head. If you know anything about production, mm-hmm. what we do is almost, not quite, but almost like recreating the movie from scratch. It's like, re, it's like recreating... A radio show, clearly. Mm-hmm. But if you think about everything we do, the writing, the producing, the directing, the casting, the acting, the editing, the titles, the, the, we're creating, for the dub, mm-hmm. we're creating a whole new film, basically. Almost. Almost. Not quite. What, but it... What I, sorry, what, go ahead. Sorry. Right, go ahead. I was going to say, um, yeah, same thing, uh, that it, you don't realize it at first. But actually, like you said, if you know about production, it's not almost re- – you're literally recreating at least a third. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, when you look at a movie, especially from the sound side, the three main things are dialogue, music, and effects. And we are recreating one entire third of a movie. So it might seem like you just – that's why it's so complicated and takes so much effort because it's literally – you take the dialogue out of a movie and you don't really have much of a movie left. <laughs> and, 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 <laughs> you know? and, and I appreciate a very good dub because, you know, look, there's – We've all grown up. We've all seen, like, the really bad Shaw Brothers films that were dubbed very poorly. You know, there's, like, no service to, like, lip movement and stuff like that. So I appreciate a lot of that stuff. I if, Like, when you guys get as as close to, like, you know, especially, like, mouth movement's a very big thing. That was, I mean, it, it was a running joke in a lot of these Japanese monster films, especially, that when you have a bad dub, you know, someone's talking, 
the, the, the voice is going for another two seconds after the person stopped talking. You know, it's never, it was never really yeah, that yeah. bad. People always exaggerate it. But there is a nuanced art to it. And so when it's done very well, and you're, you don't even realize that, you know, these people aren't even speaking the language that, you know, is, you're hearing at the moment. You know, you, got, you, you have to give credit where credit's due. Yeah, well, that's that's you know, that's true. It, it's just it's it's like I said, we're like magicians. We're trying to create an illusion that these people are speaking English. You know, it, 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 that's that's essentially it. The one thing is, uh, once in a blue moon, a character will. There's something in the Japanese culture where uh, sometimes certain characters will, especially females, will have like pregnant pauses. They'll say a line, then pause, say another line, then pause, say another line, pause. If it's a one-syllable word, then a pause, two syllables, then a pause, one syllable again, and a pause. No matter how you rewrite that sentence, it's still, you're still going to hit those pregnant pauses in certain cases. This does not happen often. It's very rare. We never edit the picture. We don't cut anything. These are uncut, unedited movies, okay? So... When we get those, we just kind of make them as best we can to make them flow. But th- that's one of the little minor hurdles with the dubbing is occasionally if a character has pregnant pauses, it's very tough to kind of – no matter how you write the sentence, it's still it's still noticeable, you know, once mm-hmm. in a while. But, I mean, this is – we're talking like – one or two percent of the time. The rest of the time, most of the characters are speaking without pregnant pauses at a at a fast clip. You know, um, so uh, it, one of the things I find kind of funny is when I write villain dialogue. I love to write for the villains, and in the Japanese shows, for some reason, when a villain laughs, does an evil laugh, <laughs> it's always five ha-has. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> you know, it, 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 for some reason, I don't know why that is, but they always do. <laughs> sometimes, you know, five ha-has is the, uh, is the uh, formula. Another funny thing culturally is that, you know, they'll say something like, uh, a character will say, did you see that monster? And a character will go, hmm. You know, nod his head and go, hmm. That's yes, obviously. But that's, we don't do that. Americans don't say mm, mm. generally, you know. So those are those little cultural things you pick up, little airy things have to be written in the script. I mean, just every little thing that those actors do has have, has to be replicated in the in the recording studio. So again, and, and as I said, the actors have to think the thoughts of the actors and feel the emotions of the actors and that's what sells the performance acting's 80% emotion. Mm-hmm. So again going back to a scene if there's a couple pregnant pauses I can't I I'm not going to rewrite the sentences for those lines because the thoughts that the Japanese actress is thinking that's what she's thinking. So I have to have the American actress think and say the same things and feel the same things. So you can't I can't screw around with that script and start deviating from it. I have to stay with the way the thought patterns have to match. Does that make sense? Yes. Very much so. Um, so now, 
since we are talking about Ultraman, can you guys can can you tell us how this came about? Because again, this is almost unprecedented. I mean, the, we I don't believe there's actually ever been any of the Ultraman movies released theatrically in the U.S. <coughs> I know there been this is the first time. There's never been Ultraman has never been in movie theaters before. No. Let, we're in about forty. We're in about forty movie theaters across the country, in most of the key major cities in the U.S. and in Canada, in Vancouver, and in Ottawa, and what was the other Canadian uh, theater? That was was that that was a uh, Toronto. So we got Toronto, Vancouver, and Ottawa. So you get the big three right there. Yeah. yeah, the main three cities. Mm. So no, this has never happened before, ever. No. Um, so, how did how did it happen? Can can you guys divulge a little bit of that? Because that's a there's a big curiosity because again, you guys, it came out it came out of nowhere. There was uh, you know adulation, but you know there after all, it's like, well, wait a minute, you know, the, it, it was kind of like it, it, again, you know, as I say, we were caught off guard. So just how. I'm sorry, I'm kind of going around around this. So how did you bring Ultraman to us, the American audience? How did this come about? How did you manage to convince Super Riot to allow you to do this? If, you know? I, I I didn't have to convince Super Riot for anything. Super Riot wanted me to do it. Really? Uh, uh, yeah, let me ex- yeah, let me explain to you how how it happened. Okay. You you understand that all these years I've written like 150 anime shows and half hour episodes and I have a long history I've worked for all the major studios in Japan mm-hmm. I produce a tremendous amount of stuff I personally write produce and direct all the material uh, I was endorsed by the Japanese government the Japanese government flew me to Japan to meet with studios and to try to help them and you know make American English language versions of their movies to help sell them and whatnot and and all of that um, it's funny, back in the 1980s, like around 1987, uh, when we had a syndicated television market, I would be going to Natpe. We had a William Winkler Productions booth. We'd be selling Techaman or whatever else shows we'd be selling. And I was, I was interested in maybe trying to do something with Ultraman 80. There was a television series called Ultraman 80. It was a very good show. Mm-hmm. And But at that time... You know, it would take me a long time to explain it, but bottom line was you had to kind of Americanize it. You had to get an American star. To, this was before Power Rangers, right? Power yeah. Rangers happened in the 90s. So, so at want, the time, so, so you wanted I had to, just, uh, to get that straight, you kind of wanted to do what Power Rangers were, take the effect. Well, no, 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 no. Oh. Let me explain what I was going to do. Okay, okay. Okay, so, so in Ultraman 80, mm-hmm. there was a space carrier that would patrol Earth and uh, it was it was a science group again, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I was going to have, at the time, Adam West, who starred in the television Batman series, Mm -hmm. as the captain of this spacecraft. So we were going to build a set in Hollywood that was going to replicate the bridge of this thing, of this space uh, carrier. Mm -hmm. And it was going to, he was going to be patrolling for alien, monitoring for alien invasions of Earth and whatnot. And then he would report back to Earth. So he was sort of like a Raymond Burr in Godzilla. Oh, okay. Or, yeah. So the show, the shows would have basically been intact, Mm -hmm. but Adam's footage, Adam West's footage would have been incorporated (laughs) three times in the picture. Now, he was, he was going to be a safety net because First of all, he would have been the star to push the show to sell the syndicated show. Mm-hmm. Secondly, 
in the event that Ultraman cut off a creature's head or did something sadistic, like mm-hmm. popped the eye out of a dinosaur or something, you know, mm-hmm. you never know what – if there was ever anything that was too uh, – at the time, the network standards and practices for syndicated television were very tough. He was going to be sort of like the emergency cushion. So his footage would either be very tiny mm-hmm. or maybe be large to to cover what objectionable stuff we would have had to cut. You understand? Mm-hmm. Yes. So anyway, we were going to do it. To make a long story short, that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. That show didn't happen. I mean, I don't think that. You know, Subra had other things going on. Interestingly enough, Subban then afterwards came to them wanting to do Power Rangers, but with Ultraman, and they turned him down too. So then he went and did the Super Sentai thing with Zoo Ranger in the 90s. But I was at the NBC at the Tonight Show backstage, and Adam West was there around 1994 or something, and he said to me, Billy! They stole our power, our Ultraman idea. Power Rangers stole our idea. <laughs> you know, and I said, well, Adam, that's show business. You know, that's the way it goes. But because uh, he wanted to do it. But anyway, so my, that was my initial contact with Subaraya. But over the years, I have, uh, you know, there'd been some communication and uh, there was interest. And I think that they just, uh, the time was right to now uh, start English dubbing the movies. Um, it's no secret that Bandai is a you know forty nine percent stockholder in Subaraya. They mm-hmm. their business is toys. Mm-hmm. Their key audience is kids. Mm-hmm. And if these movies are have super high quality Hollywood English dubbed versions, you can then reach. 330 million or 200 million kids over time in America and other English-speaking countries, and thus you could have a, a, a property they that, that would appeal in a mainstream way, uh, very much like Saban brands, you, you know. And so that is, I that's how it, it began. And they basically, uh, last time I was in Tokyo when I was there, uh, uh, you know, they took me to dinner, and I met with the head guy. I'm very good friends with the head of international. The guy is a wonderful man, brilliant guy. And we are very good friends. We talk all the time. And uh, he's the one who said, okay, I'd like you to do this, you know, do this picture, which was Ultraman Ginga S. And I said, okay. And and uh, I had to kind of study. I said, you know, I had a lot of conferences with him to find out you know what the show was and who the characters were and what this and and how to pronounce all the bandai toys that were in it and all the different gadgets and mm-hmm. and the monsters and all that they they were very satisfied thrilled with that first picture and then they gave us another one which was ultra fight victory and that was a television movie or television special mm-hmm. and we did that that turned out great that's not part of the double feature that's out but it that was a really terrific version and then we did the ultraman x uh film which i think was the best one i oh, mean i really good. i love that yeah. now when i when i saw that when i saw that finished film mm-hmm. i talked to them i said you know this really deserves to have a, a u.s theatrical run and we talked about it, and so I did it. I, or, I you know, again, I've, I've been involved with distribution. Mm. 
I will distribute certain things I don't like doing because a tremendous amount of work. Mm-hmm. I'd rather just concentrate on the production. But I have the ability. I again, I used to sell the syndicated TV, and I dealt with networks and uh, cable networks, and uh, you know all these different platforms and such. So uh, I, I then I basically. Uh, you know, went around to the theaters and we cut the deals. And I said, okay, well, I got an Ultraman movie double feature, Ginga and X combined together. So the running time was about the same as Star Wars Force Awakens. You know, uh, X is about 70 minutes and Ginga's like 63 or 4 or something. Mm-hmm. And, um, and the theaters were very receptive. And it's been very successful. And, and, and that's how it happened. And we've got more projects coming, which I can't go too much into. Detail, but we we're already in pre-production. I've already written several more projects, so uh, we're technically Bradford and I are in pre-production right now. But um, it basic. It's kind of funny in my career. It the, it came to me. I mean, every day's a, a surprise because. Mm-hmm. A new st- studio come to me, uh, Mr. Winkler. We'd like you to do this, Mr. Winkler. We'd like you to do that. Can you do this job? Can you? Do-? And then you know, and and then we do it. Um, it it's not like I'm out soliciting this. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not trying to generate this. I mean, I don't I don't advertise to the public. I don't have a you know, uh, the studios know who I am. They and because I've been around so long, they uh, come to me with work. So. Knock on wood, we're we're always getting these uh, jobs. But Subaraya came to me and wanted me to make the English versions of these films, and then I came up with the concept of doing the limited theatrical, and they'll handle some of the other distribution coming coming up, which is already in the bag. I can't say too much more about it, but there's this is just one little phase, okay? So, if you missed the double feature, don't worry, you'll see these movies very soon. Uh, you know, in kind of a big way, but that's that's been the history of uh you know, that's in a nutshell that's how how Winkler Productions and Subaraya got together. Um because uh, in the past, I've talked to several people who, you know, I, I talked with a gentleman who wrote uh, a pilot for an Ultraman series for uh, Hanna-Barbera back in the 80s. I've, we've talked to several people who, uh, especially I believe it was Don Glute, who wrote a script for an Ultraman movie back in the 70s. All these projects never seem to materialize, and, and a lot of the things we always hear is that Subaraya always got cold feet at the end, and they, they weren't really receptive to wanting to expand, you know, uh, at least in the in the Western market, if you will, and uh, you know, years later we come to find out that they do have a, a bit of an issue with a Thai company called Chayo, but that pertains to the original series. Uh, so, believe me, I, I'm I'm ecstatic to hear that they came to you, and and that uh, that they trusted you to do this, and that kind of shows that they're will they're they're at, at least now they're willing to open up to us uh, uh, foreigners, if you will, that love their product and that you are offering a medium in which that could be seen, a legal medium that uh, many of us in the past have had to go through, uh, let's just say, shadier routes in order to enjoy them. Yeah. Well, you know, let me just say this. Uh, 
many Japanese studios, and I'm not saying this has necessarily happened to Tsuburaya, but mm. many Japanese studios have been uh, screwed blue by Hollywood. Okay, Hollywood ripped I, off yeah. so many companies. So there is a hesitancy mm -hmm. or a, a, a very a cautious attitude that they take working with the Hollywood studios because of what had happened in the past. You know, Godzilla of Toho had nightmare experiences in the past. So it, it makes, you know, uh, perfectly logical sense to me. If I were a Japanese studio, I would be very hesitant to uh, work with a lot of Hollywood companies. The, the thing about William Winkler Productions is that I have a very good reputation, and although I'm in Hollywood, I'm not, you know, perceived as like a studio, like, you know... I, I, how do I explain You're it? You're not a big faceless they, corporation. They, tr I, they trust me. They, I'm endorsed mm -hmm. by the Japanese government. They know that I'm an honest, reputable, ethical businessman and that my work is professional and high quality. And that's why we keep getting the work. And that's that's another reason why studios come to me. They can trust me. I'm not going to mm -hmm. steal their product. I'm not going to rip them up. I'm not going to, you know. By the way, the other thing, too. Subaraya owns the copyright and trademark and all rights to the American English dubs, my, oh, my versions. Okay. Wow. So they will own them forever. These mm -hmm. are the definitive English dubs forever and subs. They will be showing these English dubs long after you and Bradford and I and, and Jessica and everybody's long gone. So these will be running and running and running and playing and playing and playing. Forever. That's the, uh, you know, they're going to have a library like Disney mm -hmm. where they have the finest Hollywood versions of their films and they can keep relicensing them to different distribution platforms here and whatnot. And, uh, you know, we also provide them with certain high res, uh, certain types of audio materials where if there's some new invention in the future, mm -hmm. they can they can easily put these movies on whatever the invention is and 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 they've got separate tracks for all of that stuff so uh you know it's it's really smart business and you know they're they're brilliant for doing stuff like this you know there's no it it's a whole new world i mean it it it's just amazing the the uh you know the whole all the distribution platforms, how the entertainment industry and the distribution systems evolved. Mm. Uh, mm. You know, uh, yeah, they, they now by by having a library like this, it's mm. it's great. And again, I want to go back to again with with kids. These are not specifically kids shows, but uh, boys six, seven, eight, nine, ten years old children mm. will now totally be able to watch the content understand it, fall in love with it, and get children do not read subtitles, period. I mean, it's, it's a proven fact. By the way, a lot of these movie theaters didn't want subtitled content. They wouldn't take that first thing they told me. Are these subtitled movies? Are they dubbed or quality English dubbed? Or what? <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, they didn't want it. They didn't want the subtitle. The major television uh, distribution, play, I mean, mainstream, big cable mm -hmm. they don't want they didn't no. want subtitled content that's always that's that's been the case so um 
this opens up a whole new world for the clients, you know. I mean, they, it, it's, you know. And you, it, you had mentioned that dubbing opens up to two, three hundred million more people, especially with English speakers. Are there yeah, regions right. that you feel that you and Bradford feel like really needs to be reached out so there's more Ultraman exposure in other countries? Oh, uh, I, I think... I think Subarai is going to be selling to to I mean all the different English, you know England, Australia, you know New Zealand, South Africa, you know everywhere. But U.S. and Canada is a very important big market. Yeah, big big deal. You know, I mean when you think about it, it look at you know Saban went really to an extreme when he did Power Rangers. But look at the genius of, of what he did. I mean, I as a... By the way, you know, they wanted me... I mean, the casting director personally called me to be in the original Power Rangers. And I didn't do it. It's a long story. I, it was, I was idiotic for not doing it. I should have done it. But anyway... <laughs> That, so I mean, it's it's true, you, like you true story. Door, like, true story. They, I, I, I mean, I was very seriously considered... For that first se- for the first series, mm-hmm. they the casting director Favorite personally <laughs> called me on the phone, wanting me to come in to audition because they they thought that I would be good for one of those Ranger characters. But anyway, um, it's all right because I got to play Ultraman anyway. Mm-hmm. So I well, we'll bring that up in a second. We'll, we'll, <laughs> but, we'll come to that in but, a second because I wanted to ask about that as well. So yeah, but but the funny thing is that when you when you think about what Saban did with Power Rangers, okay. He created this giant brand that was phenomenally successful. And, you know, there's a Power Rangers toy island. Every toy store, every Toys R Us and Target and all the major stores in America, every kid watches the shows and the new incarnations. And by Americanizing, localizing it, turning it into a brand that could be seen by millions, that was a tremendous success. And so that never, ever, ever would have happened if it just would have been, you know, Super Sentai Zoo Ranger English subtitle. I mean, that that never would have, would have happened with American children. So, you know, it's, it's great to have the subtitled versions for the audience that likes that. But if you want to have a mainstream giant success like a Star Wars or a Star Trek or a, or any of the Marvel stuff or Spider-Man or you want to have the big Power Ranger brand, you've got to have something that you're, that mainstream Americans that they may not be fans of the stuff can watch it, enjoy it, get a kick out of it and then fall in love with it, you know? I mean- that's what's important. I think that's something that 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 sometimes people miss. You know, they don't understand the children's market's very. You understand when you look at the movie theaters in Japan for a lot of these the Super Sentai movies and the Ultraman movies. You know, they're filled with children, oh, right? Very much so. Very, very, I mean, very you, much you see, so. little kids are like. Yeah. Uh, you, you saw the Ultraman X movie with Yuto, right? The little yeah. boy who was mm-hmm. who turns into into well i don't want to say i don't want to give it away uh for those who haven't seen the movie yet but it's like an audience full of those you know elementary school kids and their parents and families it's a family thing so uh yes i actually went to the ultraman festival this year in japan and it was predominantly boys it was predominantly boys between ages of five i would say and 13 
and usually yes. they're mothers. <laughs> yes. So yeah, he's predominantly boy. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny because Brad and I are now working on some anime pilots. I've I've been given some projects, which is the opposite. It's it's a girls thing. Girl. Yeah, uh, yeah. We can't oh, talk yeah. about it, but it's it's little girls, six, seven, eight years old. Believe me, that the anime market's very. It's gone very much towards uh, <laughs> women have predominantly. They've become the predominant fan base of that market. Like you go to a, a anime expo at all, and yeah, it's it, the women outnumber the 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 men at that show. It's, it's fascinating. About, I've been invited. I've been invited to go to. You know, I, I, I was going back. I mean, my history goes back to. You know, like I said, I, I was doing. Con, I would see. I never went to too many conventions because I was always working. But when I would go to them in the eighties, it was all about the anime. People wanted to watch Tekaman and see the episodes and sit there and. Watch. It was serious about watching the shows. There were screening rooms, and I would go and talk, and I, I. Went to an anime show a few years ago, and it, I don't think that a single anime show screened, but they had endless cosplay contests. And I thought, wow, look at how it changed over 30 years. It, it became more of a costume party than a, than a, than a screening situation about uh, the, the, the films themselves, you know, or the series. Uh, but I don't know. It, 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 it's kind of funny how it evolved. I mean, back in the days of Tekaman, I was editing on a Moviola 16-millimeter film. I was working with film, you know, and now... When What's you look, that stuff? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I'm sure Brad loves the idea of not having to deal with film stock, but mm -hmm. I was... <laughs> It was very... It was, so, it was so complicated back then to, to, to work in the analog... World. We, we we did we used to record Techaman in a in Bob Clampett's studio in Hollywood. Uh, Bob Clampett was the guy who worked for Warner Brothers and he created uh, Tweety Bird and uh, also did Beanie and Cecil. I don't know if you know what Beanie yeah. and oh, Cecil I know, is. I know Beanie and Cecil. Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, excuse me. Um, but. Uh, Sorry, I kind of lost my train of thought there. Uh, I was just thinking of that the, the dinosaur head right now of, of meeting Cecil. Um, <laughs> so uh, let's real quick move on to the fact that you both, not only did you guys, you know, have you gentlemen brought, brought these films over, you're both in the films themselves. Yep, yep. <laughs> well, so, I, I said before that if, if okay, if, if there's a role that I will fit, uh, I'll do it. I never take a salary as an actor because I'm already being paid as writer, producer, director. So I don't, I don't take another salary to act. It's one less actor we have to pay for. But again, I'm a professionally trained actor and it just saves a lot of time. It's more of a time-saving thing than anything else. Um, in fact, when I did Ultraman X's voice, it was really Brad who said to me, you know, you kind of sound like you sound like the guy, the Japanese actor who's the voice of X. And I kind of listened and looked at it and I thought, hmm, I guess you're right. You know, let me give it a try and I'll do it. And lo and behold, I did. Uh, when I saw, uh, you know, uh, whenever I had Brad do some voices, it, it, what was it? Your character name was Hayato, right? Hayato. That's a funny thing for me. Um, I actually met Bill in a lot of ways through voice first before he, I ended up coming to do the, the sound stuff. Um, I did voices with so many of the anime projects 
uh, you know, That's Vanguard right. Ace right. and Guy King and Starzinger and all those. Um, I did voices first. That was my, my main thing. He had a different sound guy, but when the opportunity opened up, that's when I was able to come in. But uh, yeah, so for me, it's kind of ironic that I started with the voices first. That's right. That's right. Yeah. That was like 2007 or something. Seven. Yeah. Two, yeah, 2007. Yeah. Oh, what? So a day, well, well over a decade already. Yeah, time flies, right? <laughs> Can't believe. <laughs> well, as I said, but here's the other thing too that I don't think people who haven't seen the movies yet, especially the double feature. So, uh, William, you do acts, and in uh, uh, Ginga, you, uh, Bradford, you do Ultraman Dinah, do you not? Right, I am. Yes. He's only got a couple lines in there, some of the fun ones. In the Ginga movie. <laughs> yes, in the Ginga In the Ginga movie, yeah. He's got you know some of the fun battle cries, which are always fun to do. That was kind of a childhood dream, mm. getting to do one of those you know, fun battle cries. Yeah. <laughs> the cha or the, the, the ha, you know, those but kinds his, of wonderful things. But his well, voice. Or like the, the revolium wave and like Yo. all, you know, and, uh, all those things. Like mm. Those are always fun. <laughs> but his voice really fit the, what, Hayato was the name of your character. That's X. in X. Yeah, in X I'm Hayato. And, and again, okay, when I remember I talk about fitting the key in the lock. Brad's voice fit that Japanese actor's uh, voice and look perfectly when he talks you totally believe that that that's his voice brad's voice was a perfect match look we're not doing this you know just for shits and giggles mm-hmm. we're this is very serious business that we're doing so we're not out. we're not going to we're believe me we're not playing games this is not a joke so we'll only do it if it's a perfect match, and in that case, he was a perfect match. In that case, I operate the uh, editing equipment. Brad will just pop in and do his thing. You know? <laughs> That's how we do it. Well, wonderful. Uh, Jessica, do you have any uh, – we're going to start wrapping this up because we've taken a whole lot of your time. Oh, <laughs> oh no, no. I I am going to have to do an entirely different – a podcast on everything else that was on your IMDb because I almost I was actually quietly sitting in the spa waiting for a friend when I checked out your IMDb and it was real hard to be quiet. <laughs> it was very hard to be silent. Um, what do you mean? What, what do you mean be silent? <laughs> well, I can't. You know, I don't want to yell out at a quiet spa, but it was. You Are you a fan Star of all Singer. the? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Ultraman. There's Star Singer. There was Guy King. There's Kit. There was. Everything from Night Rider. I had so many questions, but I understood that uh, today we were concentrating on Ultraman. Right. So right. we're gonna have to have an entire Chris. We're gonna have to tire an entire another podcast. We we will. Where we cover. We're, we're definitely gonna have to do. Uh, you know, we might, we I have I do run a separate podcast that's all film TV based. We'll have you on that one. You can just tell us stories. Okay. <laughs> all right. That sounds fine. Um, yeah. So right now we, as we record this, it is the 18th of January. Uh, Ultraman is still. It's actually, I, I believe, it expanded a few showings as well this coming weekend. Did it not? About about half of our theaters have uh, are are still going to be running it. The rest mm-hmm. of the it runs throughout the rest of January. You, uh, you know, you can check. Uh, Sci-Fi Japan has a theater, a permanent theater last list. So does Tokusatsu Network. I think Anime Net News Network has one too, and you can check those sites and you can see the. But Sci-Fi Japan and, and Tokusatsu definitely 
uh, you can look at those sites and find out if there's a theater near you, you can go see the pictures. Uh, about half of our theaters have run the film already. It's been very successful. Uh, another half are going to be running it at the end of the month. I, I can tell you this right now. This has been a very successful the limited theatrical run so far for Subaraya and Winkler Productions. I'm not going to go into box office numbers, but we are we have we have it's all profit you, stuff you, now. We, there's there's been no loss at all. This is all just all wonderful gravy coming in. So it's been a success. It, actually, when you look at all the Hollywood movies, mm. when you when you look at what's happened this this month with. With all the Hollywood bombs of Ben Affleck's, you know, Live by Night and, oh, yeah. and, and, you know, Martin Scorsese's film bombed and Monster Trucks was a, you know, tanked. Mm. Ultraman was a. <laughs> was that was the profit okay. turner this that, month. <laughs> I mean, I'm, again, I don't want to. On a, a limited theatrical, the numbers mm. are going to be different, of course, than the. But I mean, we not only succeeded, it's mm. all just, uh, you know, doing very well. Hey Amen. Those those per screen averages on those limited that's where that's where they all look at. It's those the it's uh who's who's going to what cuz it's a little more uh And it, it's not just the money. It's 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 the fact that people are actually I'm, turning in. Honestly, honestly every every little every review we're hearing about all mm -hmm. the social media, all the blogs, I mean Brad sent me some stuff with Twitter, email texted me some Twitter stuff. It's all positive. Most people love they're surprised at how good the movies are. Ultraman X is a damn good movie. One of the other reasons why I wanted to get a theatrical release for it was because it had almost a Hollywood script story structure. It didn't it, – it had – it wasn't like a typical Japanese film. It had kind of a Hollywood movie script uh, format. Mm -hmm. and And that – that movie was really great. The actor Michael Tomioka, who played Carlos Kurosaki, kind of stole that show. And I, I had a wonderful voice actor who who replicated his voice beautifully. You know, and uh, it's it's a funny movie. It's action. It's got adventure. It's uh, I think it's a near perfect film. I I, I mean that's that's what inspired me to. I, I told you before I don't like distributing, mm -hmm. but I, I I I did that because I thought that X was such a strong picture. Ginga is very strong too. Don't get me wrong; it's a good movie, but that that first one was just. I mean, X is it, that's the fiftieth anniversary movie of Ultraman. You know? Mm -hmm. Oh oh yeah. Oh, that believe that's that none of that is lost on on any of us. Uh, yeah. Either Jessica or I or anybody that's listening. Yeah. And the original yep. the original yep. Ultraman the original Ultraman uh, yep. appears at the end of the picture and and it makes an appearance and it's fun. Well, I I would I will say one thing. I'm I, you know I again I had one foot in the analog world. I have one foot in the digital world. I know a lot of the people who brought anime over to America, like Fred Ladd is like an uncle to me. He was uh, the man who brought Astro Boy, Kimba, uh, Gigantor to America. He was the first, he was the pioneer of American anime for television with NBC. And we have lunch. He's, he's still active and he's a wonderful guy. And I'm also, I was great friends with Peter Fernandez who was a uh, speed racer. The guy who wrote, produced the English dub of Mako Gogo Speed Racer. He was Speed Racer and the voice of Rex, you know, I mean, Racer X and uh, a lot of the villains. And Corrine Orr 
is still a wonderful she's like an aunt in a way i she we talk all the time she lives in new york she did all the voices in speed racer uh trixie and spritel and mom racer and all the female characters and she did a lot of voices in the godzilla movie she did uh in in uh, godzilla versus the sea monster she was the two twin fairies mothra's twin fairies that you know the two girls that talk simultaneously and she was in the gamera movies and she was wonderful. She and she was in Ultraman. She did voices in Ultraman. I keep joking with her. I said, "Well, Corrine, if I can get you out here to California, I can have you do some voices in a future Ultraman movie." But we do, we do not we do not use the Japanese the Asian accents anymore. No. You know, like the original, yeah. the original oh, yes. Japanese, you know, the original teacher dubs were, "Oh, Hayata, it's mm-hmm. so nice to see you." Uh, what? Oh, the monster Benra <laughs> is in the ring. Yes, except Hayata didn't have an accent. He was. He was played by a guy named Earl Hammond, mm-hmm. another really great radio theater actor in New York. And uh, he always kind of was like, well, you know, I, just, I am Ultraman, you know, this type of a thing. But uh, anyway, so I, I do have a connection with, I think Corrine is the last living voice actress from the original Titra Ultraman dubbed series. I think everybody else is gone, I think. And that, I mean, that's, I mean, uh, for those who, I mean, I'll put a link in there, but yeah, Teacher is a legendary studio, especially when it came to the, in, in the dubbing world, especially, so. Um, you know, and you got to understand, too, when they were looping those shows with that analog technology, they did the best that they could. Mm-hmm. I, you know, those actors were all very well-trained theater Broadway actors and radio actors who were working all the time. They were not bad actors. It's just... Sometimes the lip sync was not exactly perfect because they didn't have the the, the the looping technology was not the same as what we've got today. And some of the writing, some of the scripts, they didn't they didn't do some of the tricks that I am doing. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it it and and it's hard to explain. It would take me a long time to do it. But also Brad's trickery, they didn't have any of that at that time. But they were still fun. Listen, I never would have – as a kid, when I was a little boy, uh, when I was in elementary school, I would come home like around fourth grade. I would come home from school, do my homework, have some milk and cookies, and then I could watch TV. And I would watch Speed Racer followed by Ultraman. And all my friends would watch Ultraman Monday through Friday from like 4.30 to 5 here in L.A. And we loved it. It was like watching a mini Godzilla movie every day, and we watched the Godzilla movies and stuff. And but you know, who would have thought? You know, years later, I'm writing, producing, and directing the American English language versions of Ultraman. It's an amazing thing. I'm honored to be part of the Subaraya history. I'm honored and thrilled to be part of this thing, and I'm trying to do the best job that I can. And I think that E.G. Subaraya was a genius. And I feel a moral obligation to do fantastic work for him. And uh, he was, uh, he, he really, you know, uh, contributed tremendous uh, things to the Japanese film industry and creating, really, if you really think about it, he, he co created Godzilla and Rodan and Mothra and King Ghidra and all those monsters were Subaraya's, you know, creations. He's the one who really made it all come together. And so, uh, I'm, I just feel obligated to do the best job we possibly can, you know, and honor him. So I, I, I love the fact that we're working with uh, 
uh, Subaraya, and I look forward to us working on many other productions, and it's been all very successful. And, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's pretty that's much it. Pretty much it. Uh, well, I'm, I'm glad I – look, uh, me and thousands of others are very happy, especially the fact that you guys – you got Ultraman X, the movie out, which, especially that movie, uh, as far as the Ultraman films go, you can kind of walk in blindly without having to watch the series. It, it is an end capper to the series, but it does stand very well on its own. You really don't need any kind of prep going in, especially if you know any Ultraman lore. You just it it just kicks off running, and as you said, yes, it's uh, one of the one of the very best. And to actually, it's very smart of you to put that front and center. Uh, for this double feature release, it's it's a fantastic film to see it, you know, on a big screen with a wonderful surround sound uh, to get a, what the Japanese audiences enjoy. That you know we're watching, you know, some of us have to watch on our tiny little computer screen with our headphones on. It's uh, it's it is a pleasure, uh, gentlemen. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, we are very honored to have both of you on again. The honored to be here. Thank you. The uh, the films are still out there, so if you're listening to this, if this coming weekend, go out there, go support it, go see them. Uh, check uh, our friends at Tokusatsu Network; they have the list. Check uh, Sci-Fi Japan as well. I believe they're still playing at most the Alamo Draft Houses, are they not? Yes. Perfect yes, change. I know that Perfect this, this, this coming too. weekend there's going to be a big. Uh, I know in the Bay Area, San Francisco mm-hmm. area, there's. I think they may be sold out. I don't know, but that's going to be a that that's going to be a big Alamo Draft House in San Francisco is a is I think going to be a a big. Uh, uh, showing there so it's this weekend i believe I, so and honestly i can't think of any better theater venue to see it in than the alamo i love the alamo draft house chain absolutely love yeah it. yeah they've been great they've been fantastic and like i say chicago music box has been a was fantastic that's a that one really well, yeah. yeah that was the mm-hmm. audience went nuts there that was really a almost a packed house what was it brad the but yeah, it's what I uh, what I heard. It was, I guess, almost a full house, which is a pretty big theater over there. So it was probably it was a lot of nostalgic a nice big audience. Yeah, a lot of nostalgic parents with their youngins, and then some other people who had grown up with it. I guess from what I from what I saw, some people talking about it on Twitter and everything. Uh, audiences audiences are cheering in the right places, and they're they're uh, you know responding and they're laughing at the right jokes at the right spots, and they're just getting into the movies, and the kids love it. So it's it, my nephews love. <laughs> yeah, oh, it, it, his nephews actually. Where, which he played in Alaska of all places, <laughs> and uh, my nephews live in Alaska, and they they really enjoyed it. So <laughs> their first exposure ever to Ultraman. And I think that was the first the time. I think that was the first time that Ultraman's ever aired in Aus- in Alaska. In Alaska. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, is there any if anybody if uh, or if anybody from our audience wants to you know maybe chat up with you? Is there any social networking uh, either of you gentlemen are on right now that they can find you at? Are there any sites or projects that you guys would also love to promote? Well, for me, yeah, um, you can find me on any of the major social networks. I'm on uh, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Um, all of them are Bradford Rex Hill, so I have the same handle for all of them. Please love to have you follow me. Keep up with whatever, whenever we have any new Ultraman stuff or whatnot, I'll tweet about it, put it out there, let people know. 
and uh, you can follow that. And then as far as projects, we've got some more stuff coming. Like uh, Bill said, we can't talk about it too much. But um, for me, I've got a sci-fi short film uh, that I finished just this last year, and it's going to be hitting film festivals this year. Um, it's go, um, just getting started with that festival circuit, but if you want to check it out, it's called Mirrored. You can find it on my social media stuff, but it's also at mirroredfilm.com. Yeah, Mirrored is really, I went to the premiere of it, it really is a fantastic uh, sci-fi thriller, and uh, Brad did a fantastic job with it. I mean, the effects, and uh, it's about cloning. Mm-hmm. An unwanted <laughs> clone. Yeah, it's really, it, 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 it looks like a big, ma- I mean, for a short film, it looks like a big major Hollywood studio science fiction thriller. You know, it, it it's it, it's fantastic. So, and and stay tuned. We've got more more stuff coming that will interest your listeners. <laughs> yes. Awesome. Well, hopefully, if it again, it's you know, I, you can't say much, but it does seem that there's an air of uh, of uh, possibly more uh, Japanese superheroes down the line. When those if, if though if those are what I'm thinking they are. Uh, please come back on. Help. We'll, we will gladly help promote them, and you know we will we'll okay. do more stories. Appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. No, thank you. And uh, on that note, Jessica, where can the good people find uh, more of us? We, the Kaiju Kingdom podcast, is actually on iTunes. Mm-hmm. I believe you also said Stitcher as well, mm-hmm. but most people I know they definitely find us on iTunes. We're also on Facebook as the Kaiju Kingdom podcast. And on Twitter, we are just the Kaiju Kingdom. There is no podcast at the end, uh, character limitations. And of course, if you prefer to privately rant at us, we are the Kaiju Kingdom podcast at gmail.com. And so thank you. We want to say thank you for all the people who've been clicking likes and responding to all the Facebook posts and everything. And uh, where can they find more of you, Jessica? Oh, actually, yes, I am on Facebook. Feel free to Facebook friend me as Jessica. And my last name is saying so it's t-s-e-a-n-g and then from there it links to all the works that i do such as panels for conventions and also um girl on geek and a lot of other sites that we run also the kaiju kingdom podcast Mm -hmm. is also on my facebook as well and if you're listening to this please check you're obviously listening to us if you're finding us on itunes do check us out at our home site panzercrush.com home of the panzer crush podcast network where we also run two other shows right now the realm cast take two our weekly uh pop culture uh, show and uh the four post massacre our uh pro wrestling mma podcast and on that note that will do it for this grand first 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 episode of 2017 uh edition of the kaiju kingdom podcast so for myself uh mr winkler mr hill and jessica Thank you, guys, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you.